0: We have been, over the last week and this week and into next week, kind of revisiting our mission as a church. Um, So, uh, not our mission, our vision. One of the the things that, that has been really on my heart lately for our city is, is I mentioned this last week, we have a lot of Christian activity, we have a lot of churches, but we have very little gospel renewal. And what I mean by that is we have a city that seems broken down. And I I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again with a risk that maybe you don't agree with me, and that's okay. But I hear a lot about what God did 50 years ago in this city. And I don't hear a lot about what God's doing now. And so what I think that that falls upon, what the responsibility for that actually falls on is on the church. And so what we're looking forward to and what we're looking out to is not just, just churches that Build upon and in and up so that we have this great big church, what we're actually looking out towards is how do we bring the good news of the gospel into our city in such a way that it brings renewal, in such a way that it starts to transform lives. One of the illustrations or the, the observations I used last week is what if we just saw all of the abortion clinics in this city turned into pregnancy help centers? Like what if that happened by the result of the gospel going out? What if like all the strip clubs shut down and turned into buildings that were then used for churches? Like what if that happened? What if that kind of renewal started to come to our city in such a way that we saw marriages repaired that were in impossible situations in such a way that we saw all the statistics about child abuse just start to rapidly go down? I think that some of us have lost a belief that that's actually possible and that that's actually what the gospel does, right? So we, we will read through the New Testament and we will we will see where it talks about all the things that happen in Acts. And we're like, yeah, but that was back then in the early church. Like in Acts 17, we talked about this, like the gospel going forward literally shook the economy. Like, To the point where the business is there, we're like, we got to start a riot because so many people have stopped coming to our business and buying idols from us. Like, what if that was what we saw in our city right now here in 2022? The gospel going forth in such a way that it's just shifting the economy. What we believe here is that happens... Through a movement of, of three things, and it's this, it's Jesus, community, and mission. And so last week we talked uh, about the fact that the Christian life is a, is a life that comes in encounters Jesus, and upon encountering Jesus, we then go throughout the rest of our lives, turning from our idols, turning towards the living God turning away from the things that would call our allegiance away from him and turning towards him. And so here at Jesus Chapel, if you wanna know what we're about, it's Jesus. We're about Jesus, we are about the gospel because we believe that it literally changes everything and that as it goes out, we will start to see renewal. As people start to encounter Jesus and become confronted by the living and true God, they will turn. That's what we believe. That's our desire for our city. And we believe that gospel renewal happens through one Jesus, then into community, and it flows into mission. This is what Christianity is. And if we take out one of those pieces, we will miss out on what it is. If we take out one of those pieces, we will get a decaffeinated view of the Christian life. A counterfeit view of what God intended for his covenant community. Let me give an example of what I mean by that. If the community itself is not centered around Jesus first and Jesus only, it will then become a fan club for whatever the common appreciation is. But here is what the the church should actually look like. I want to point to two disciples. One of them is Simon the Zealot, and the other is Matthew the tax collector. Now, cultural context for you Simon the Zealot is literally someone who was ready to kill people, specifically the Roman Empire, on behalf of Israel. So he was like literally walking around with a sword, ready to just take somebody's head off anytime they said something against Israel. And then you have Matthew, who is a tax collector. Now, here's what's important about Matthew Matthew is also for uh, an Israelite. But being a tax collector means that he has now kind of turned his allegiance from the, uh, from the Jews and given it to Rome, which is the power it be, the power that Simon the Zealot would have hated. And so we have these two people. We have Simon the Zealot and we have Matthew the tax collector. And Jesus sees these two dudes and he's like, all right, they definitely hate each other. So why don't you guys come be in the same home group? <laughs> why don't? Matthew and Simon, we're gonna give you to Ryan and Lori Little's home group and we're gonna they're gonna they're gonna straighten you guys out. Just to, like what that would look like today in context. I, I picture it as we've got a far right wing extremist and then a commie liberal on the other side. <laughs> and we're gonna put them in a home group together. Like The only way that that happened successfully, that they could find themselves in community together, would be a turn of the heart. It would be a a moment where the most important thing that was their lives before was replaced by something else. You see, what would have happened in them is that the most important thing about them no longer became their worldly politics, instead it became Jesus. And so, so here's what we want to we recognize, that if our hearts are centered around Jesus as a church, then if our hearts are centered in, G- in Jesus, if Christ is in you, then the truest and most important thing about you is shared with every believer throughout history, When we are centered, rooted, focused on Christ, we can turn from lesser loves and worldly allegiances that would drive division and instead lean into community that is sustainable. Here's what I love about the Simon and Matthew the Tax Collector story. Um, Neither of them, upon being called into following Jesus as his disciples, upon being set up in that home group, had completely given their lives to him yet. Here's what I mean by that. Neither of them had made recognition at the point of being called into discipleship that he was God or that he was savior or he was their personal Lord. We don't see that happen until later on in Matthew and later on in the book of Mark and later on in Luke and later on in John. So in the beginning of their relationship, I'm willing to bet that there's some conflict and some tension and what is happening here is they're invited into a style of life, a way of living that actually puts off lesser conflicts for the sake of true unity. But they haven't even totally determined if Jesus is their Lord and Savior yet. So they've committed to Jesus and then what we believe is that here as a church, as we commit to Jesus in the continual process of turning from our idols, turning towards God, reordering our loves, recentering our hearts on Christ, that as we see Jesus, the real Jesus, and follow him and become more like him, we will also grow in greater, closer connection with the community of saints that have been gifted to us here at Jesus Chapel. That's what, that's what we believe. We believe that we are saved into a community. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. Christianity is communal, it is not isolated. A couple of years ago, um, while I was getting a tattoo, I was speaking with my tattoo artist because I had about like three hours there and I figured I might as well have a gospel conversation with him. So, sitting there and he's just, you know, causing tons of pain to my arm and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm speaking with him uh, about... Jesus, And and as we begin to talk, I'm attempting to communicate to him the goodness of Jesus and the grace of the Lord. And he's like, yeah, I agree with all of that. Every single bit of that, I agree with 100%. And he starts to talk to me about his favorite things about Jesus. And I'm like, oh, this is weird. Like, I did not expect this from this guy. And then, um, because I was judging him silently in my heart, uh, which is (laughs) funny. Um, So... (laughs) So, we're having this conversation about Jesus, and then I just was like, hey, so where do you go to church? Like, uh, w- where are you learning these things? And he was like, ah, you know, I don't really believe in the church. Um, I just kind of believe that, you know, you know, Acts 17 talks about where God doesn't live in temples made by man. And so, I go out into the wilderness, and I find God, and, and it's fine. Like, I just kind of live my life, and I don't really bother with the church, and I don't really bother with Christians. And he, he began to attempt to communicate to me that he actually doesn't need church or, or organized religion or he doesn't need a community of saints. All he needs really is creation. And that's enough of who God is for him. And The more we talked, I would begun to realize that he didn't necessarily have a poor view of who God was. Like he knew, he knew who Jesus was. In fact, he related to God as creator. He recognized Jesus as uh, Lord and Savior. He just decided, like, I don't really want to follow him the way that he set out. But what he did have was a poor view of the Christian life and a poor view of what the church was. You see, he had changed the conversation about what the church is to a building. And that's never the conversation about what the church is in Scripture. Like, it, it, it's not a physical location. More on that in a couple months. Something you and I miss often in Western societies is that we typically tend to be more individualistic in our culture as opposed to a lot of Eastern or Asian uh, countries. Now, we, we push against this a little bit, being on the border of Mexico, and Mexican culture is much more familial. Um, but... In America, as modern Americans, we tend to be more individualistic in our approach to life. So here's how this plays out in the church. We view our relationship to God as a purely personal thing. It is me and God. And so... Um, And I want to be careful here because I think all of you should have a quiet time in the morning. You should be in the word. You should have a personal relationship with God. But that should not be all your relationship with God is. And the tendency for us is to turn it into that. Well, it's me and Jesus, us four and no more. Like we limit as much as we possibly can. That was a Trinitarian joke, us four and no more. If you didn't catch that, that's all right. I'm in my own world here, so. so. So what we often miss in that is we miss that God is redeeming a people, a community of believers. Uh, he is redeeming a covenant community. This is what he's been after since the beginning, This is what we see in Israel. He is calling a nation to himself. Exodus talks about them as a kingdom of priests and that language is brought back in the New Testament that you and I now, part of the church, are a kingdom of priests. We are not saved to be off on our own and we're also not saved to just have a personal relationship with God. We're saved to be a part of a kingdom of priests, a community of people, a covenant community of people which ties to God's covenant love, right? So imagine, if you will, um, that God set out in the very beginning. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Moses and Israel. And then from there, he just was kind of flaky and never really talked to them, never really told them what he was hoping for the relationship, and he just kind of remained distant. That would be a poor covenant relationship. What's happening in the church is we are actually entering into covenant relationship with God and with one another. But what would that look like if, if we treated God the same way that, that we treat often the church? That, that it's kind of a flaky, you know, I'll see you once a week maybe if I feel like it or I'll see, like that's, that's a poor view of what community is. It, it's, it's a poor view of covenant as well. God has saved you to be a part of, one, the church universal, which is all Christians at all times, and two, the church local. Christianity happens within the context of community. Like We just could not get away from this in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about one anothering each other 59 times. Like 59 times your Christianity and your relationship to the Lord is mentioned in context of you having a one another relationship with other believers. A majority of the New Testament letters are written to a group of people. You would have to make a huge case to argue that the New Testament is individualistic. There's really only like three books where we see that. But the majority of the New Testament is written to a community of people, written to a body of believers. Here's the problem, though. We modern Americans are lousy at community. In 2014, researchers at Duke and the University of Arizona found that more than a fourth of the people they studied... Are Sorry, only one-fourth of the people they studied had people to talk to about their problems or successes. Only 25% of the people they talked to. That was seven years ago, eight years ago, before COVID isolated our population. So we can only guess that that problem has increased that lack of community has increased. And so here's what this looks like. In, in modern America, we have longer work days, we have longer commutes, we have more time in front of screens, we have Facebook's metaverse coming, which the purpose of it is to try and say, hey, be disconnected and connected all at the same time. But all that happens when that happens is everyone you look at becomes a celebrity who you can sling whatever words you want at. It doesn't create true community doesn't create being fully known and fully loved. It creates a false sense of understanding of one another. And so all that our culture is telling us is to move out from one another. Considering the recent events of of COVID and just the political divide that we live in, we are more disconnected and void of deep, meaningful relationships than we've ever been. And we were not created for that. Like, Oh man, beginning of the Bible we see and God created and it was good and God created and it was good and God created and it was good and then he saw that Adam was alone and it was not good. Like it is not good for you and I to be alone, to be disconnected. But not only are we distracted and isolated and lonely, we are also angry. (laughs) Angry. We modern Americans hate one another. In the New Testament, there are only two categories for how we relate to other believers love or hate. Maybe um, you, like me, were in grade school and you had friends that were like, hey, you want to rate each other? Like, we'll just see like, who your best friend in the class is. And you had to, like, you know, you were like, 10 is like, I like this person the most. And one is like, ugh they have cooties, you know, like that weird stuff. And then you grow up later on, and I'm going to date myself here, but you had MySpace, and MySpace, you could pick your top friends, you know, and just to slight someone, you'd put Tom from MySpace on the top there, just like, ha ha. Anyway, and anybody, everybody always had Jesus, depending on where they were at, and then, you know, you could tell when you had gotten into a relationship, someone, because they'd moved up right next to Jesus, and you're like, oh man, that must be serious. Like, that, that, Context, that complex grading scale of where somebody stands on, where they're like hate over here, love over here, like somewhere in the middle, that does not exist in the New Testament. It's love or hate, one or the other. There's no middle ground for how we relate to other believers. It's so much simpler. Ray Ortland says this. He says, in America today, we hate one another for our politics, our economics, our culture wars, our various opinions on subsequent issues. If ever there was a time for Christians to be a counterculture, it is now. We as a church are an alternative society. We are not here to endorse the systems of this world, the divisions of this world, the hatreds of this world. We are here to provide an alternative that comes down from above. We were created from above. We are a new kind of community where anyone can come in and belong because Christ Jesus defines the ground rules of this new community in his life, death, and resurrection. We want to understand how wonderful, miraculous, and improbable it is just to be a church. We are a colony of heaven on earth. Jesus rules here. Jesus alone And what he wants is for anyone and everyone to come and discover him and adjust their lives to him so that lonely, angry people unite as a new community for his glory. And so here at Jesus Chapel, that's, that's one of the things we're really going to be about. We are going to be about community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. And so the way that that looks, kind of the purpose statement from last week, is we would desire that upon encountering Jesus, we would turn to him, begin to look more like him, and we would do so in a covenant community that really knows us, cares for us, rejoices with us, and weeps with us. And then from that community, we'll invite more people in To know Jesus, and we'll do the whole thing all over again. So, how do we know as a church, how do we know that we've arrived at a community that looks like New Testament Christianity? Like, how do we know when we've adjusted to what Jesus had in mind for his church? Like we want to we wanna see gospel renewal in our city and we're believing that Jesus, community, and mission, those three things in that order are necessary in order to see our city shaken by the gospel. If that's the case, like how does that happen? It happens by turning to Jesus and then it will happen in real terms as we let heaven define us as people more than we let earth define us. And so here's, here's what I want to do today. I want us to, to focus on two things. We've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians for this. Um, the first is I think we need to understand God's love for his church. And the second is I think we need to then understand what that means for us and our love for the church. So we're going to go ahead and uh, read through First Thessalonians, a couple verses that I've pulled out. I mentioned last week, we're not doing a full exposition over these three weeks, but we're trying to hit on three main themes that I see Paul trying to get at. So the first uh, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. If you, if you have your Bible, you can open to there and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. And then four sixteen through 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, Uh, Go down to chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. And then down to verses 14 and 15 of that same chapter. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters, Warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. This is the word of the Lord. I want to quickly remind us of this church's history. We went into Acts 17 last week and we discussed how this church, Paul comes and over a period of three weeks he's preaching the gospel and we see a a large number of Greeks come to know the Lord, a smaller number of Jews come to know the Lord and then the author seems to make a case that something that's also important there is that there is a large number of the city's leading women that come to know the Lord. And so after about three weeks, they come to know the Lord, they've accepted the gospel, and they have decided to start following the Lord. And what happens immediately after, as they're beginning to follow and try to figure out what this looks like, I mean, we talked about this, that they had probably not even gone through a First Steps or New Believers class. They had just figured this out. And then persecution comes. A man by the name of Justin is dragged from his house and paraded through the city being accused of somebody who is subverting the government at the time. And he is then brought before the rulers of the city and he is threatened to pay a fine. And what we see through this is that the persecution continues throughout the church so much that Paul and Silas and Timothy have to run so that they are not murdered. So Imagine, if you will, that that's your life. That's your first week as a Christian. Most of us aren't making it through that. But Paul had the same concern for this church. He was very worried that they would not make it through it. And so as he has left, he, he continues to try and get back to this church in Thessalonica and it's not working. And so he begins to hear reports of them in other regions and it's positive reports. It's that their faith has just gone and exploded. And so he sends Timothy, which there's a note here that's important. Timothy is his co-laborer in the gospel, his co-worker, his friend, his brother. Paul considers himself a spiritual father to him probably the most important person on the planet to Paul. And Paul sends him back to the persecuted church. More on that next week. So Timothy goes back and he gets a good report from this church. And and Paul is so excited that he writes a letter to them. I want to make a note of something real quick. We have a a church that is brand new with tons of persecution that is mostly Greeks, leading women in the city, and some Jews. Now, let's just talk about what is a just powder keg for a divisive situation. Here we have Jews who look down on Greeks. We have Greeks who look down on Jews, and we have those two who both look down on women. So we just already right off the bat have multiple layers in this church that have to be broken down. And, and what do we see in the book that Paul writes to them? That they love one another really well. That they have leaned into Christian community. That the gospel has landed on them in such a way that the testimony of their church is going out throughout the region. Like that's the power of the gospel in a divisive culture. I want us to, to notice something real quick. We want to pay attention to where this unity comes from, where something like that shows up in scripture. This wasn't on the screen, but in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. God loves his people. Like, this is such a common theme throughout scripture. Like, I mean, the the verse most of us first learn about, I mean, aside from Jesus wept, the first verse most of us memorize is, for God so loved the world... Like it is, it is God's love that motivates him into action. It is God's love that motivates him into justice. It is God's love that motivates him into protection of his people. Like God loves his people and that right there, God's love for his people, God's love for his church is the primary context by which we are to understand our love for one another through the lenses of God's love for us. Uh, Let me give an example. Maybe this will help it come close to home. I met Julie uh, about, yep, eight years ago. There we go. I met Julie eight years ago, and and Julie and I began talking, and over a period of four months, we grew really close in relationship, and I just, I started to fall in love with Julie. And I came to El Paso to visit her family, and, and something I knew about Julie is that Julie loved her family. She loves her sisters. She loves her brother. She loves her mom and dad. She loves her nieces and nephews. And that is something that's very true about her. And so this strange thing happened. I spent a day with Kim and Micah and Nora because they were the only kids at that time. And um, I just found myself welling up in love for them as well. Now that's really strange because I had just met them. And so, what would have been really awkward is if I just went in and was like, "Hey, Kim, I love you. I'm just so glad." Like she would have been like, "This guy's weird. You should not invite him back." But that feeling in my heart started to well up, and the reason that it started to well up is because I understood the love my my wife had for these people, my girlfriend had for these people, because she loved them and I loved her, my love for them began to grow. Because I knew that she loved them, and because she loved them, I loved them because they are loved by Julie. I therefore grow in my love for them. Similarly, by loving God and understanding his love for his people, we then grow in love for them because they matter to him. They matter to him. His love for his people is the primary context by which we understand our love for the church. God's love for his people is the foundation by which we understand how we should begin to love each other. Like if you do not grasp God's love for you or God's love for the church, you will always struggle to grasp his love for others. If you cannot understand God's love for you and what he's done for you, it will be incredibly difficult to walk in love towards one another. And so this is why Jesus matters and Jesus comes first because it is in Jesus we see that the love of God is on full display in flesh and bones for us to behold. Beholding Jesus helps us to understand God's love for us. If God gave up His own Son for you, Jesus willingly gave up His life for you, and He also did the same thing for the rest of the church, that is the context by which I then walk out in love for one another. If God cared for you so much, then how much more should I also be invited into caring for you in such a way that is loving and, and sacrificial and caring? Because God who I love, Jesus who has given all for me, gave all for you. And if you mean that much to him, and I love him, you're gonna to begin to mean that much to me. But there's, there's two ways that this often gets missed. I think both of them are rooted in a misunderstanding of the gospel. There's two ways that this gets missed. One is having too low of a view of yourself and the other is having too high of a view of yourself. So, I mean, maybe you just grew up and you lived a, a life of rejection. You had a pretty hard home and it's, it's just really hard for you to believe that you could ever be loved. It's really hard for you to comprehend God's love for you or maybe you're just kind of detached from your emotions and, and you know, it's like you, you understand the truths of God's love but it's never really hit you. And so you kind of, you love him But you've never really felt an overwhelming experience of God's love for you. Or you've, like I said, just been rejected your whole life. And so the idea that somebody could love you is just something that you could never comprehend or really experience. So you feel like, you know, maybe you have to work to earn his love and you never measure up to his high expectations. And so you just believe that you don't really have anything to bring to the table. The church, you know, couldn't possibly benefit from you being a part of it. God really doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, he loves you, but you're probably not as much as the rest of the people in the church. And so you'll just kind of have this isolated, off-to-the-side relationship. Maybe one day you'll get involved, but you're, just once you, you don't really feel the love that he has for you. So you isolate, you avoid relationships, thinking you'll only ever bring them down, and it's really just better for them if you aren't a part of it. It's a misunderstanding of God's love. The second is having too high of a view for yourself. So maybe you've just lived a life of self-sufficiency since an early age. You've just been making it happen for yourself. So you know that God saved you, but it's because of how awesome you are and what a great addition you make to the team. That's why he he brought you into the kingdom because he just knew how much you'd be able to do for him. He's like, I got to get that dude or I got to get that, that girl. Like those, those ones, they're going to be the, the A team. You know, everybody else can sit back. I really need somebody to make it happen for the kingdom this time. Really need a savior for Christianity. So I'm going to go ahead and get that person. And so you, you just kind of assume that that's how you came into relationship with God. You've been self-sufficient, you've made it happen, so you've got this Christianity thing in the bag, and people are only a hindrance to you getting where you're trying to go. So you avoid Christian community because you've got a feeling of superiority and you think you have nowhere that you need the body of Christ. And both of these views are shattered by looking at God's love for us, and God's work in Christ Jesus. You see, in the gospel, you are fully known and fully loved. All of your past regrets, your failures, your rejections, your hurts, all your worst moments are fully known by God, and yet those things do not cause him to run the opposite way. No, it's in those places that he draws near to you. Like, I wish that we could get this, that in our very worst moment, where like our sins have finally piled up enough, that's the moment that Jesus is like, let's go. On the cross for that one. He does not run in the opposite direction because he's afraid of you. He runs towards you so you can breathe. And rest and see that you are no longer a checkered past unworthy of love and affection but you are a child of God one who is cared for who can sing the great anthem of the Saints throughout history that God has set his loving care on me and he has done great things for me that is now true about you Maybe you live the life of self-sufficiency, and in the gospel, you are fully you are fully confronted with your false sense of righteousness. You see, Jesus goes to the cross not so that you can look to your own righteousness, but so that you can take upon His. There's a story in scripture that I I really love. It's in Luke chapter 18. We see a Pharisee and a tax collector are contrasted with each other. So a Pharisee, if you don't know this, is the religious elite. They are the ones that people looked at and said, yep, that dude's got it all together. And the tax collectors were the ones, as we talked about earlier, that were despised, betrayed Israel, and by betraying Israel had betrayed the God of Israel. And so we have these two people put on display, tax collector and Pharisee. the Pharisee comes to pray and he prays thanking the Lord for all that God has done to make him righteous. He points to his own righteousness. He points to his ability. He points to his work of fasting. He points to his prayer. He points to his personal holiness. And then we see somebody else show up. The tax collector. The despised. And he prays a simple prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the story continues. Uh, Jesus asks the question. He says, which one of these men do you think walks away justified? The tax collector. The one who understood that he didn't need his own righteousness. He needed Christ's righteousness. He needed God's righteousness credited to him. Like, this is what I love about this story. That, that uh, Pharisee that's there, he's doing all the right stuff, right? He's, he's doing the religious check, mar- check marks. He is doing all of the things that you're supposed to do in order to earn God's favor. But what he's doing is he's leaning on his own personal righteousness. And the beauty of this scripture is that we can look to the prophet Isaiah where he says that our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Even our good works are done contrary to the work of God. What had begun to well up in this Pharisee was a self-righteousness, a spirit of pride, which actually made him far from the Lord. And so the one who cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the one who recognizes his need, In Jesus, we have his righteousness credited to us so we can drop the act that we can go it alone because the only way home is with a guide who has already paved the way. We can rid ourselves of superiority and self-sufficiency because in Jesus, we see that the only way we get anywhere is through Christ's righteousness. He levels the playing field completely. There's no superiority. There is just those in need of a savior. And so the gospel comes in and it wrecks these two ideas, this idea that we could never attain God's love or this idea that we've already got it because we're so awesome. Both of those are pushed against in the gospel. This is God's love for the church made known in Christ and it is the primary context of love for one another. And what I want us to point out and what I want us to notice is that in both of those stories, there's reasons not to lean into Christian community. In the story of the one who doesn't believe they're good enough, there's reason not to lean in because nobody could want me, nobody needs me, and so we isolate. In the story of the one of self-sufficiency, there's reasons to avoid Christian community because I don't need people. I've got this on my own. And the gospel levels the playing field. It tells both of them you're in need and it tells both of them that you're needed. We have to understand God's love for us, otherwise we will never understand what we're called to in our love for the church. And so let's move into um, what our love for the church is to look like. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. Earlier in this Book, Paul is writing to them and, and he says, um, as for loving others, you don't need me to write to anything to you because God has already taught you how to love people. This church, the testimony of their love for one another has gone out and just shocked, shocked the cities around them. Come so far to, to Paul a church that really should have been divisive. I mean, the fact that this church even exists is a, is a miracle of God. And, and their love for one another is a testimony of God's work in their hearts. That testimony is so radically different than the countercultures around them or the cultures around them. It's a counterculture. And it starts to permeate like where people are talking about it. And it's that church right there that loves each other in such a great way that Paul then continues the prayer for. He continues to pray that the Lord would make them increase in love for one another. That they would increase in love for one another here is a church that's already loving one another, and Paul does not commend them with, good job, now move on to the other stuff. You can let that sit behind for a bit. No, he encourages them to keep loving one another, to overflow in love for one another, and then he's praying that the Lord would give them such divine love for each other that could only be explained by the power of the Spirit working in them. This is my prayer for us as a church. Man, I'm I'm so encouraged by the love that you all have for one another. I'm encouraged by the way that you care. And my prayer for us is that we would continue to increase in that love, that the Lord would cause us to increase in love for each other. And then we're gonna go down to chapter four, verse 16 through 18. Now, I've got a few minutes left and we're dealing with end times and hotly contested passages on what's happening here. And so I'm just going to tell you, feel free to read your Bible on your own. The answers are in the text. It's pretty clear what happens. Now we're going to move into what I'm trying to get to and what I think Paul's after in this text. So we have persecution in this church. We have loved ones dying And as those loved ones are dying, Paul writes this letter to them. And he writes in the back half of this letter a bit of an encouragement. He points to the hope of the resurrection and to Christ's return. And and here's what I want us to notice in this specific passage. So he points to Christ's return. He says, one day Christ will return. And then let's notice what he says about the return. Says that they will be caught up together with him and we will always be with the Lord. Here's a a hurting church who is losing their loved ones, and Paul's consolation for them is the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and then this is where we, we have to see something, the inheritance of the saints. Christ does not return alone for you He returns with the body for the body. Like, we are united in Christ on that day. Part of our inheritance is not just Christ's return. It's also the body of believers. Like, I wonder if part of the reason we don't lean into Christian community is because we don't think of the body of Christ in this way. You are my inheritance. You are a gift from the Lord to me. And one day, I get to look forward not just to Christ's return where I will be caught up with him, but I get to look forward to the day where I'm caught up with you. And forever, you and I will be together with the Lord. We will be together with the Lord. In Christ, I do not just get the benefits of salvation. I get the benefits of an eternal covenant community and a beautiful inheritance in you. I get to look forward to that day when the trumpets sound and we meet the Lord and you'll look at me and I'll look at you and we'll laugh and we'll throw our arms over one another and we'll look back and we'll rejoice what the Lord has done and and we will forever be together. I just want you to think for a moment, not only of those who our church has lost, but of those you have lost who you know are in Christ. And on that day, your inheritance, forever with Him and forever with them. I spend the rest of the day on that sermon. But we got to go on to what Christian community looks like. And I'll be I'll be brief. 5:14 through 15. And we exhort you brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. You and I as human beings are shaped and formed by what we do regularly and by what we do together. Paul calls them in this passage to Christian community, which is love for one another, yes, but there's more than that. What does that love look like? Part of it is exhortation, warning, comfort, help, patience, pursuing what is good for one another. Like, this is what you and I have been called to as Christians. And, and because of that charge, because of the call as differing people in a divisive culture where we are more isolated and um, angry than we've ever been, this is going to get uncomfortable when we are called to exhort one another and to warn one another. It's going to get uncomfortable because we have a, a culture that would tell us just get rid of all the toxic people in your life. Now, there are some reasons to no longer be in community with people that are valid and I don't wanna deny that. But we hear that word toxic in today's culture and what that means is don't be around anyone who challenges your preconceived notions. Only be around the people who see you for who you really are and allow you to just be the terrible person that you are. Only be with people who never hope for your growth, never hope for you to be a better human being. Only be around those people who are just okay with not liking you. That's, that's not... Christian community, we are, we are actually called into, like you and I, man, you and I, we have rough edges. We do. And the way that those edges get broken off and we get smoothed out as human beings is by actually being with people. Like actually being in a room with someone who disagrees with you and investing in love for them The, the only way we grow is actually like taking the step into that and saying you know what this is going to be really hard it's going to be uncomfortable i'm going to be challenged i may be warned i may be exhorted into greater godliness and and holiness and yet at the same time i know that this is good for me because oh man our culture would tell you that because it's painful it's wrong and that's just a lie from the pit of hell most good things are difficult and require hard work. And Christian community is just that difficult and requires hard work. You and I, we just can't see our blind spots. And this is why social media is ruining us. Because you can just say whatever you want to say and then mute people's comments afterwards. Or you can just say whatever you want to say and never, like, you're, you're in an echo chamber of people who agree with you. And so you never actually are confronted with the fact that you might be wrong and you might just be hanging out with a bunch of idiots who are just wrong where you are. Christian community forces us into a space where the truest thing about us, Jesus, is the most important thing about us and it's the unifying thing about us and everything else is a rough edge that is sharpened and soft, Sorry, softened by one another. I can't see my blind spots. You can't see your blind spots. And so we need people to help us see ourselves and who make the gospel fully known to us. In the gospel, you are fully known and fully loved. And so what is the invitation of Christian community to be fully known? and fully loved. The gospel is made practical and real to us in the midst of Christian community where where I'm given the space and the safety and the time to admit to you where I'm really at and I'm given the good news of the gospel to be loved in that space, to be pointed towards Christ who is my righteousness. That matters But we have to know that anytime we put a bunch of sinners near each other, it's just a recipe for conflict. Because of this community, this community can get messy and uncomfortable. And so we lean in and we do what Paul calls us to here, pursuing what is good for one another. Like my, my tendency as a human being is I have, I, I have a bit of an idol problem where I just really want to be liked. I want you to like me. And that can be an idol for me. I can be moved more by people's approval than anything else. And so sometimes what will happen is is a hard conversation needs to take place. And because I'm worshiping my idol more than I'm worshiping God, I'm going to avoid that hard conversation because having a hard conversation may mean you don't like me anymore. And I don't want that. But in that moment, I'm not pursuing what's best for you. I'm pursuing what's best for me, you liking me. That's best for me. I'm pursuing my my own idols. And so in Christian community, I'm invited to turn from that, to have difficult conversations of exhortation, of warning. And then we're called to pursue their good, to comfort the discouraged. Like I have never met a single person that is suffering from over-encouragement. So we're called to comfort the discouraged. We're called to help the weak because that is what Christ has done for us. We're called to be patient with everyone. The community of Christ should be a community of patience. A place where people can come in and be pointed to Christ in a safe place. Where they're given the time to experience the love of God experience the love of the church and then to slowly turn the ship that is their life in the direction of Jesus because people are complex and change is hard you and I are called to patience with one another which is exactly what God has been for you so now that I've set the stage This is why all of you should be involved in gospel communities. This is why every single one of us should be getting connected to a group of people who calls us into close, meaningful relationships. And so, we're launching our gospel communities these next few weeks, and I want to encourage you to get plugged into those communities We have on on Monday nights at 7 p.m. at the Mendy's house. And Maggie's 6 p.m. at the Mendy's house. And Maggie's right here. You can come talk to her after the service and get the information. On Tuesday nights at 7 at Ryan and Lori Littles. Is it 7 or 6? I have the times all wrong in my notes, All right? 6 for theirs. Uh, Joe and Christy is at 7 on Thursday nights. You can go talk to Joe and get invited to their gospel community. Or you can come to my house on Monday nights at 6.30. I got that one right because it was my time. Uh, at 6.30 on, Monday night, or on Thursday nights. Like, that's where we want you to get plugged in. Get plugged into gospel communities. And the purpose of those groups is so that you will develop deep and meaningful relationships and that we will see Christian community happen and so that it will flow into mission, which we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we were not created to do this alone. And yet our tendency so often is to run in the direction of isolation, self-sufficiency. Lord, we want to draw closer to your people. Would you help us? Would you help us to um, believe the gospel? Believe that when we are fully known, it is a good thing. Lord, you have outed us on the cross. We know that. And so we ask. We ask, Lord, that you would you would help us to believe. That you would help us to believe that you indeed have rescued us, that you indeed have sh- saved us from our shame. And that you have gifted us with this body of believers and, and inheritance, Lord. Thank you that you have rescued us. That in you we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And because of that, we can be a part of a covenant community that is loved by you. Lord, we desire to walk out with that love for one another. So I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to increase in love for one another.